Hey, Prime members, you can listen to the Al Franken podcast ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. This podcast is supported by FedEx. FedEx offers fast delivery, more visibility, simple returns, and weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. population on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. With FedEx, you get picture-proof of delivery, ensuring you always know where your package is. Returns are simple with packageless and paperless returns. Plus, FedEx Ground is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. So, what are you waiting for? See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. Hey, everybody, we got a great one today. You know, finally. What am I saying? Last week we had a great one. I just can't remember who that was. But this week, this week, holy mackerel, we have Minnie Timuraju, the president and CEO of Reproductive Freedom for All, formerly NARAL. And their new name, Reproductive Freedom for All, says it all, but not really. If you think that Dobbs just affects abortion, turns out that men and women who want to become gynecologists are heading to medical schools in pro-choice states. And when they graduate, of course, choose not to practice in states like Texas, where Kate Cox, who was pregnant with a non-viable fetus, had to leave Texas to get an abortion. So women in those states where abortion is illegal or legal up to six weeks, say, they are hard-pressed to find care for all kinds of other gynecological issues, screening for different kinds of lady cancer. Can I say that, Peter? I don't think that's a great idea. Okay. Why not just say ovarian cancer or cervical cancer? Yeah, that's, that's what I meant. What I'm trying to say is that Dobbs has had an effect on women's access to other kinds of gynecological care. Anyway, Minnie's terrific. You're going to get a lot out of this one, folks. But I I wanted to talk about Mitch McConnell here in the monologue. I, of course, served uh, with with Mitch. Wait, didn't you get on his bad side? Uh, Yes, in uh, August of uh, 2010... I was presiding over the Senate during the debate on Elena Kagan's nomination uh, for the Supreme Court. And at one point, he said this. No one has any doubt that Ms. Kagan is bright and personable and easy to get along with. But the Supreme Court is not a social club. If getting along in polite society were enough reason to put someone on the Supreme Court, then we wouldn't need a confirmation process at all. Understand that now, Justice Kagan had been the first female solicitor general in our history, arguing the Obama administration's uh, side before the Supreme Court. If the Supreme Court was the polite society that McConnell was talking about, then, well, you'd, you'd still need a confirmation process. Oh, and prior to being solicitor general, she was president of Harvard Law School. So I laughed at what McConnell said and rolled my eyes. Mitch didn't like that, so uh, when he finished his speech, he approached the dais and raising his voice for the press gallery behind me, the hearer blurted out, this is not Saturday Night Live. I was in the doghouse. A freshman senator doesn't laugh, roll his eyes, and smirk at the minority leader. You smirked? 
Yeah, I also smirked. So I wrote an apology note and um, brought it to his office, and McConnell later told the press that he had accepted my apology. That was uh, big of him, I guess, and I, I don't hold any of that against uh, Mitch, but I do hold the fact that he stole the Supreme Court. You know the story, but it, it bears repeating. When Justice Antonin Scalia died in mid-February of 2016, President Obama nominated Merrick Garland to replace him. Then-Majority Leader McConnell decided that his caucus wouldn't take him up. I, I, I couldn't find this clip, so I'll just do McConnell. The American people may well elect a president who decides to nominate Judge Garland for consideration. The next president may also nominate someone very different. Either way, our view is this. Give the people a voice in the filling of this vacancy. So in an unprecedented move, the Senate Judiciary Committee refused to have hearings for Garland nine months before the November election. But when Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg died in the middle of September 2020, Majority Leader McConnell rushed Amy Coney Barrett through. She was sworn in eight days before the election. The people didn't get a voice in that choice. Joe Biden was elected eight days later. McConnell stole two seats on the Supreme Court. Instead of a 6-3 conservative majority, we would have a 5-4 liberal majority. That's much more than Roe. That's unraveling the administrative state that does all the stuff we care about, West Virginia versus EPA, for example. Oh, and McConnell also could have ended Trump's political career by instructing his caucus to vote to convict him in the impeachment trial. There, there's that. Here's a couple of excerpts from McConnell's speech that day of the vote on Trump's impeachment trial. There's no question, none, that President Trump is practically and morally responsible for provoking the events of the day. But, the but, the all-important word in many Mitch McConnell's speeches, the all-important but. But in this case, the question is moot because former President Trump, Trump is constitutionally not eligible for conviction. Now, this is a close question, no doubt. Donald Trump was the president when the House voted, though not when the House chose to deliver the papers. Brilliant scholars argue both sides of this jurisdictional question. The text is legitimately ambiguous. Okay, the test is legitimately ambiguous. But he came down on the side that evidently some brilliant scholars disagreed with. It's that but. If he had only agreed with the other brilliant scholars and brought eight more of his Republican colleagues with him, he was the leader after all. Well, then we could be avoiding all this bullshit we're going through now. If Trump had been convicted, he would be ineligible to run for office again. And that failure is a giant part of Mitch McConnell's legacy. 
Now, McConnell will continue as minority leader until November. And let me tell you why he is leaving that office then. Because he knows that if Trump wins, God forbid, if Trump wins, Trump will instruct the Republicans in the Senate to get rid of him as leader. Mitch is crafty. Well, we've got a great one today. You know, for a change, Minnie Timuraju from Reproductive Freedom for All. The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way, and that's with Babbel. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's convenient courses have helped me learn real-life conversation in German. For example, let's say you wanted to order soup with your dinner. Die Suppe würde mir auch gefallen. That means the soup <laughs> that means that means I would also like the soup. And that way I get soup with dinner. Here's a special limited time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at Babbel.com slash Franken. Get up to 60% off at Babbel.com slash Franken, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash Franken. Rules and restrictions may apply. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Manny, I'll give you a proper introduction uh, later, maybe, or now. Why not do it right now? Uh, Manny Timuraju, uh, who is president and CEO of Reproductive Freedom for all. Just thrilled to have you, Minnie. Thank you so much, Al. Um, it's wonderful to be here. On a personal note, if you had told me in 1996 I'd be on a podcast with the guy who wrote Rush Limbaugh is a big fat idiot, I would have been completely shocked. Uh, I definitely was reading your book more than I was reading my law school textbooks back then, uh, and they were very informative and shaping for me. So thank you. Well, great. Thank you for saying that. Uh, we'll keep that. We're going to keep that in the podcast. <laughs> so, but you, you you did also graduate from law school, didn't you? I barely did, but it, you know, it counts. Okay. And now uh, as a president and CEO of Reproductive Freedom for All, you've got, uh, it's a busy time, right? It's a pretty busy time. Um, you know, we were formerly NARAL Pro-Choice America, we have uh, 4 million members now and over in all 50 states. And I joined just a couple of weeks before the oral arguments in Dobbs. So I kind of no came boy. in knowing what was up and ready, uh, ready for the fight. But it's been a pretty uh, raucous couple of years. Well, the court now has Mifepristone uh, before it. Let's talk about that. I mean, looking at the six Republican members of the uh, court, why, why don't you talk about what's at stake? Yeah, you know, it's top of mind for all of us. So Miffy Pristone 
is part of the abortion pill regimen. It plus a drug called misoprostol are how we get uh, medication abortion in this country. So it's what's commonly called the abortion pill. And what percentage of uh, abortions are done that way? Yeah, over I mean, over 50%, a clear right. majority of those uh, abortions. That's such an important point. This case came out of a, a really kind of bogus organization in Texas that was formed in Texas in order to get in front of a specific uh, federal Judge. court. Uh, yeah, Matthew Kaczmarek. <laughs> Yeah, uh, a Trump appointee, a radical with extreme right wing ties uh, to the anti-abortion movement. And he's like the only judge in that district. Like they have a district with one federal yes. judge. So if you go to that district, you get this Kaczmarek, right? That's right. And it was by design. Right. Um, and it's something we know our friends in the Senate are digging into and looking at, like, how can such courts exist? This is a complete threat to our democracy. The fact that, you know, every lunatic organization is now going to create an org in Texas uh, in Amarillo to get in front of this guy uh, is really quite disturbing. But it's uh, an important example of how they'll really stop at nothing. Right. Folks thought, you know, post Dobbs, Dobbs was settled law. This was back to the states. But we all know that was bullshit because this is how they're trying to go about a backdoor abortions ban in 21 states. But in the rest of the country, it's not. Medication abortion is the most used form of abortion. So why not try to upend uh, that, right? So this case originally was about FDA authorization of Mifepristone. Uh, mm -hmm. Now that it's going to the Supreme Court, it's more about uh, regulations that were loosened around uh, Mifepristone to make it available by mail, brick and mortar pharmacies, uh, telemedicine. So any restriction on medication abortion is equivalent to a backdoor abortion ban and really will dramatically impact folks who are in states that have protected abortion access, where they have absolute rights per their state to have abortion care. And uh, so what what are the range of opinions? But I, I can't, you know, with Coney Barrett and Alito and Thomas and Kavanaugh and Gorsuch, I can't see it coming out well let alone Roberts, but I mean, those five that I just mentioned, they all seem very, very anti-abortion in every way possible. Yeah, this is the, you, and you know this um, from your time in the Senate, This these are a bunch of justices that showed up in front of the Senate, committed to uh, respecting Roe uh, as precedent, and then overturned it's super Roe. Pre super precedent, I think. Super precedent. That's said. right. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you for the reminder. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's quite shocking. And so, look, anything that goes through this Fifth Circuit and this Supreme Court is uh, really chilling, and it's it's ominous that it even is getting this far, right? Now, what does this say for the FDA? Because yeah. the Supreme Court can overturn FDA approval of things. I mean, it's terrifying. So, so actually, I think our best, the best hope in this case, and we saw it between the Fifth Circuit and the way the Supreme Court limited it. Uh, is the FDA argument. You know, there was a multi-month effort to lobby Big Pharma uh, to get senators were calling Big Pharma, organizations were calling them out, we were calling them out in the press, get involved in this case. This is way more than abortion. This is, although abortion should be a big enough reason to get involved, we know you don't care about that, but you care about your bottom line. And undermining the FDA would have seismic effects on um, the entire industry. So they did weigh in at the last minute, and I do think it was helpful in narrowing the scope of the case, but it's still a pretty horrible case, and it still has uh, potential devastating consequences. 
We'll learn that, I guess, in June. Is that when they... Yeah, oral arguments for the Supreme Court um, and Miffy Bristone come up in a couple of weeks, so we'll keep you posted. Um, we've got something called the People's Petition, uh, along with our friends at Planned Parenthood and ACLU and a host of other organizations, where we're asking citizens to sign it to weigh in with the court about why Miffy Bristone and abortion medication is so important to preserve. Now, you're, you're from Texas. I am. Let's talk about the Kate Snow case. How long was she uh, in her pregnancy when she learned that her baby basically had lethal genetic conditions? Yeah, so Kate Cox um, is the case in question. She oh, was... Oh, sorry, Kate Cox. No, yes. it's okay. You know, uh, there's there's honestly, you know, there's so many of these cases right now um, that it's really hard to keep track. She was a 31-year-old mother of two pretty late in her pregnancy. Um, I can't recall exactly how far along, but she was pretty late in her pregnancy. And the Texas Supreme Court ruled that she could not have an abortion. A lower court had granted her the cover to do so. But what's really interesting is that the Texas uh, Attorney General, he's a character, Ken Paxton, went into court to intervene in the case, which was pretty unprecedented, and took it to the Texas Supreme Court, which then ruled against her. So they ruled against her, however, after she finally said, I I can't wait around for the courts. This is important. She left the state to have her abortion. You know, she is a perfect example of the average person seeking an abortion in this country. She was a mom already, right? She was trying to do the best thing for her child and her family, but she was unable to do what she needed to do. And her doctors were unable to do what she needed to do. They were trying to really force her to carry a non-viable pregnancy to term. And that's what's really dangerous and scary about the Kate Cox case, but she's not the only one, right? We've now seen dozens of these cases in the 21 states with abortion bans. I think what happened with Kate, however, was it captured national attention, kind of like the Amanda Zaroski case also in Texas, because their cases were so dramatic, right? In both of these cases, they were being forced to carry non-viable pregnancies and to great, great risk at, to their own health and their future. How, how do they not get that through their head? I had a conversation once when I was in my early 20s. I met a priest who seemed like a great guy, and I asked him about basically a situation like this. Yeah. So what, what if someone is six months along and they learn their baby has some kind of genetic condition or something wrong that they're not viable and they're not going to live, you know, after birth or, or may die in the womb. Why wouldn't you have an abortion? And he said, no, 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 you should. Yeah. I mean, there's, yeah. <laughs> it, it, it doesn't make any sense. Yeah. And also puts at risk the woman's future ability to have kids. So I was having this discussion actually recently with a group of members of the House. It's our tendency on the progressive left, you know, Democratic side of the aisle to really want to dig into the why. Like, what's the science behind it? And if we could only make a rational scientific argument to these folks, they would understand, right? It makes no rational sense to force someone like Kate Cox to carry an unviable pregnancy and if you're following, you know, the rhetoric of the right, you know, it's about families first. It's about moms first. But look, you know, and you exposed this in your very early work that I was talking about earlier. It's not about science or facts with these folks. It's always been about power and control. I've been working in this movement for over 20 years, and it's really important to constantly remind folks on our side that it's not really important 
worth debating the merits. It's important for us to go straight to the American people, as we've done in state after state on abortion, and explain that this is really about fundamental freedoms and the freedom to decide if, when, and how to family, not about facts and the rationale behind the right and their incredibly cruel uh, limits. They don't, they don't care about the science. They just want to restrict access and healthcare choices for the majority of Americans who can get pregnant. Speaking of access to healthcare choices, what has Dobbs done to women's choices in getting just healthcare, uh, gynecological healthcare? Yeah. You know, I would think that a gynecologist, someone who's in medical school wants to be a gynecologist, it doesn't want to go to med school in Texas or doesn't want to go to med school in Iowa and also doesn't want to live there, even if they're from Iowa. Yeah, there's been some devastating information about uh, hospital closures. Forget abortion care, just women's health care, OB-GYN services, deserts, right? In places like Idaho, where there are abortion bans and doctors are like, I don't want to be in this state anymore. What's happening post-Dobbs is this culture and climate of fear. Uh, So many of these states are targeting providers. And we already know, you already know, a lot of your audience already knows that abortion providers have been targeted from the beginning, right? Since prior to Roe, right? Uh, Forced to practice underground, forced to wear bulletproof vests to work. Uh, I used to work for Planned Parenthood in Texas. All the doctors in our facility wore bulletproof vests. It was just appalling. But now every doctor in some of these states with bands is nervous, is on edge. They have to worry if they talk to, if I'm an oncologist in Texas, I have to worry about, um, can I talk to my pregnant patient about her options. Because as we know, you know, um, it's unsafe for a pregnant person to get chemotherapy and life-saving cancer treatment. So the ramifications are endless. Uh, It's also affecting where folks want to go to your point to college. You know, it's not just affecting medical professions. It's affecting all young people. I've talked to so many parents who are like, can you send me that map of abortion bans again? Because we're talking about where my kid's going to go to college. Mm-hmm. And I don't want my child going to school where if they have an um, unintended pregnancy or they just want access to birth control or they just want access to plan B uh, and they get the range of services that we expect to get in college. So uh, the effects post-Dobbs are way more than anybody thought. I mean, well, I should say we thought we, we, we knew, but way more than I think uh, the public could imagine. And I think that's why this issue is so salient and continues to be so salient election after election. Let's talk about rape. Um, yeah. There, there was a, a study about the number of pregnancies from rape uh, in 14 states with abortion bans uh, since Roe was overturned. They estimated it at 64,500. Uh, and the methodology, it was done by Planned Parenthood of Montana, Hunter College of New York, Cambridge Health Alliance in Massachusetts, and the University of California, San Francisco. So the methodology was enough for, for JAMA to publish it. Yeah. I, I want to run the ad that uh, uh, Andy Bashir ran oh, and, yes. and run the audio for that. Uh, Peter, do you have it? I was raped by my stepfather after years of sexual abuse. I was 12. Anyone who believes there should be no exceptions for rape and incest could never understand what it's like to stand in my shoes. This is to you, Daniel Cameron. To tell a 12-year-old girl she must have the baby of her stepfather who raped her is unthinkable. I'm speaking out because women and girls need to have options. 
Daniel Cameron would give us none. Daniel Cameron was running for governor against uh, Governor Bashir and lost. Yeah, that ad is obviously powerful for, I mean, for yep. all the reasons you talked about. Yeah. Andy Bashir is such an interesting case, right? I mean, I'm from Texas and folks say, well, yeah, these are all great arguments in purple states or lean blue states like Virginia, but what about like a place like Kentucky? What Andy Bashir showed was you can run and lead on abortion in the state and you can just really aggressively, that ad was on nonstop in Kentucky. You can aggressively talk about these very uncomfortable topics and move Republicans because there was no way Andy Bashir would have won that election without Republicans too, right? And we've seen again, mm-hmm. time after time, state after state, when abortion's on the ballot, we get some crossover from Republicans. Yeah, how many how many states have had? We started with the Kansas vote where, where everyone was shocked. I believe it's like seven now. And then Mi- Michigan and Ohio and uh, Montana. Kentucky was there too early on. Every time we were, we're on the ballot, we win. Now in 2024, We've got a bunch of states that are pending that we're looking at for ballot initiatives. Some some may make it, some may not. I, I think your folks know some are able to get on the ballot through the legislature and some have to be through citizen petitions. So that's a, that's a factor. I wanted to make one more point about Bashir and that ad, if, if that's okay. Yeah. That, that, that's our, that <laughs> ad was so powerful. But one flag I have, and I, I've been talking about this to a lot of our friends running for office, that ad struck the right note for the audience in Kentucky. And I think, you know, all of our friends running for office, they know their state's the best. You knew your state the best when you were running, you know, all mm-hmm. of our colleagues do. Uh, and I'm actually in Nevada right now, just did an event with Jackie Rose. And like, she knows this state better than anybody. That being said, where we advise folks to be cautious about leaning too heavily on the exceptions argument. And here's why. The Texas cases, we were just talking about Kate Cox. You know, we were just talking about, all of these later in pregnancy abortion cases. These are all cases where there were so-called exceptions designed to not work. This is important. All these exceptions that are supposed to be in these laws are designed not to work. They're almost impossible to enforce. If someone has to take their case to court and get into a court fight with the attorney general of your state, what is the value of that exception? So that's one reason we we really try not to hang our hat on these exceptions-based arguments. The mm-hmm. other is it gets really easy for the other side, like Donald Trump is saying right now, to say, well, I support exceptions and undercut our whole argument. The bottom line is everyone should have the freedom to decide if, when, and how to have a family, and the government shouldn't be involved in any of it. I, I get that. So- you you bring up a point that every time the thing is on the ballot and it's on the ballot everywhere going to be in 24, how can we use, I mean, cause when it is on the ballot, it makes a, a difference. And, and of course, well, I don't mean necessarily literally on the ballot, but I think Trump is running for as a, a, a ban at what? 16 weeks. Yeah. That's the latest. Why did he why did he pick that? He said he likes the number 16. He likes a nice round number is what he said. Yeah. I mean, I shouldn't laugh. I mean, it's laughable and it's horror. Yes. <laughs> there was a really smart in-depth piece by Lisa Lehrer in the New York Times digging in more on Trump and his philosophy on abortion and how surrounded he is by these far-right extremist Republican activists like Jonathan Mitchell. Um, who's his lawyer. Look, to your original question, Trump 
is not as dumb as folks think, even though he says a lot of dumb stuff, like 16 is a nice round number. Mm-hmm. He definitely <laughs> is talking to folks who've told him that pre-Dobbs, there was a political belief that a 15-week ban was a place where the American public were comfortable. And we've always had polling and research uh, that showed 8 out of 10 Americans supported Roe and supported access to abortion no matter what. But it's really hard to prove that outside of a, you know, election and abortion being on the ballot. Now we've had a full election specifically on a 15-week ban, and it was in Virginia. And Democrats really beat back Glenn Youngkin, who was trying to position himself as the savior of the abortion debate. Here's a 15-week abortion ban. It's a compromise. It's not a ban. He literally ran ads saying it's not a ban. It's a compromise. It's a compassionate position. And Democrats... Uh, showed incredible message discipline and just kept fighting back. A 15-week ban is actually a ban. Here's why. A 15-week ban is a ban and Virginians do not want abortion bans and they won resoundingly. So the moral of the story is, you know, Trump's using a a rationale. He's trying to pretend to be a moderate. Um, He's trying to mask himself as a moderate, but we've already beaten a similar moderate in a really critical state and we'll do it again with Trump. It's just going to take a lot of discipline from us, but also our friends in the press are already sort of validating it. I've already heard some really smart reporters say, is, doesn't this show that Trump's moderating himself and we're having to really be out there saying a 16 week ban is still an extreme ban. A 16 week ban is still a ban and there's no such thing as a moderate abortion ban period. Yeah. I mean, do those things uh, talk about exceptions? And that isn't satisfactory, but do they? You know, Trump is talking about exceptions. But again, for the reasons, you know, that we I I just talked about exceptions are politically designed not to work. But you're right. I mean, he's talking about exceptions. He's got the pollsters and the advisors telling him this is the moderate position you need to stake. But what's important about that New York Times piece I was mentioning is it goes into much more depth about all the folks surrounding Trump, this Project 2025 blueprint led by folks at the Heritage Foundation who are talking about how they can enforce more restrictions on abortion with or without Congress, including um, reviving a very antiquated piece of legislation called the Comstock Act, which would further restrict access to information, abortion care, medication, abortion, birth control pills by mail. The Comstock, what is that? The Comstock Act, gosh, I'm going to regret bringing it up, but it's really important to talk about. The Comstock Act is is something that is uh, not been used in a very long time. Uh, and it's an antiquated law from the 1800s okay. that's been interpreted in a way that, that can be interpreted in a way to prevent the movement of reproductive health products. And so there's an entire um, in-depth expose about this in both Politico and the New York Times. Actually, I think Rolling Stone was the first outlet to talk about this. If you look at this Project 2025 um, blueprint that they've released, it's about how do we use the Comstock Act to, it's much like the Miffy Pristone case. How do we use the Comstock Act to restrict access to medication abortion? So here's the thing. People might think that Trump's dumb because he says things like 16 weeks is a round number, and that's a pretty dumb thing to say. He's a feral genius. That's right. Yes. David Axelrod, I'm quoting. I mean, it's right on. I mean, and he's surrounded by really other evil geniuses who he's in cahoots with, his cronies. And let's just put it this way. He did what he said he would do. He overturned Roe. Folks didn't think he would, right? Remember 2016? I mean, I was working for Hillary Clinton. I remember it very, very well. The most brilliant thing he did 
and talk about not dumb was say, I'm going to appoint Supreme Court justices who are approved by the Federalist Society and the Heritage Foundation. And that was, that was a signal to every evangelical who is, uh, you know, any choice uh, that won the election for him. That's it. And what's important to look at now going into 2024, when you have a certain population of folks who are just desperate to look for this moderate middle with Trump, uh, those guys are back at it and they're surrounding him even now. They're advising his campaign. They're embedded in the organization. Tell me about Project 2025. Yeah. So Project 2025 uh, is this effort by a coalition of groups on the radical right to lay out a blueprint for all the different ways a Trump administration without Congress can impose some of the most nefarious restrictions on many of the issues we care about. I'm focused more on abortion and abortion care. but here's a couple of like quick things they're proposing that we know they can do again without Congress. They can revive a Trump administration rule to ban clinics that receive Title X family planning funding uh, from providing referrals to abortion care. That's something Biden came in and fixed. So this is important. There's a bunch of crazy stuff Trump did. Biden came in and fixed it. He can, he can revert it right back. Right. Rescinding all the policies that the Biden Harris administration has just enacted to expand abortion care They can deploy the FTC, the FTC, the Federal Trade Commission, to penalize and prosecute virtual clinics from prescribing abortion care. This is critical with all the folks having to travel across the country for care. They're talking about, I told you about the Comstock Act, which is a little convoluted to explain, but they are testing it and figuring it out. And they want to reverse more Biden administration guidance to remind hospitals to obligation to provide abortion care in emergencies, which is another Supreme Court case coming up. The acronym is EMTALA, which is a terrible acronym, but it's about whether hospitals can provide emergency care and abortion, which would have saved the lives of so many you know, women, including folks like uh, Yenny Alvarez in Texas, who we suspect died because of an inability to access abortion care. Mm-hmm. They can do all of that through executive action, through the executive branch. Okay. And that, that's just this 2025 group in, in terms of this issue. That's right. That's just the tip of the iceberg in terms of all the other issues that they're focusing on and what they can do. And look, I mean, we have to just keep reminding Americans the first Trump administration was such a nightmare, but there's so much that was done that people weren't paying attention to. Like the record number of judicial appointments, including Kazmarek. You know, there's hundreds of Kazmarek's across the country right now. And I think they're, they're actually now Trump's victory caught everybody by surprise, including them. And I'm not sure they had the most extreme judges lined up, but they've been working on that. Heritage has and and the federal society, and they're going to, you know, the, the consequence of electing Trump will be these very radical right wing judges. Bingo. That is the whole point of Project 2025. They are publicly out there pitching it to donors and saying we didn't have our act together the first Trump presidency. Just watch us now. We're ready. We've had four years, which is terrifying. And they're going to try to uh, get rid of the deep state. Right. The so-called deep state, which is people who work in the government who make the government work. Yeah. As as usual, everything they say is projection. Before I came over to Reproductive Freedom for All, I spent nine months in the Biden-Harris administration at the Office of Personal Management. So, you know, the agency that supports and builds the federal workforce. And the damage the Trump administration appointees have done 
I mean, there's, we're still digging out of that ditch. Talk about that if you could. Yeah. I mean, to the extent that I can talk about it, I will say, you know, I specifically worked on um, an executive order to reinstate diversity, equity, inclusion, and accessibility rules and guidance across the federal workforce. But what I can say anecdotally is federal employees were incredibly, the workforce was devastated. People were leaving the federal workforce. Um, and the folks who were left were depleted, were incredibly demoralized. You had LGBTQ uh, employees, for example, who just didn't want to participate in anything that could reveal their identity in a Trump administration. You had agencies that were uh, afraid to enforce longstanding rules for fear of retribution by the politicals who were appointed above them. So it's not simply the act of just who the president is and how they enforce regulations or what they can do or not do with the executive power. It's also about who comes to work for a federal government when the executive changes, the chief executive, the president changes. And I think what we really enjoyed as a country prior to Trump was a sense of security by some of the best and brightest civil servants in the world that no matter what happened politically, they could still hunker down and do their jobs and do it well with pride. And they could be largely unfettered in many ways in the core roles that they serve in this country. Trump upended all of that. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back with Minnie Timuraju of Reproductive Freedom for All. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message, and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop, customer satisfaction scores would rise, and everyone would be more productive. That's what happens when you give Grammarly to your entire team. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said, done. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. So, uh... Minnie, uh, do you mind talking about your family? You you have uh, twins, right? I do. <laughs> they turned five on uh, President's Day. Uh, um, they're twin boys. Um, yeah, they're just full of energy. And uh, my husband and I are older parents, and we're we're constantly tired. <laughs> and and uh, yes, I know how tiring that is when you're young. Now, you adopted them. I did. Um, I, we we um, were really fortunate. 
we were living in Pennsylvania at the time um, and we got matched with a really wonderful um, birth mother uh, in Pittsburgh. And so uh, we we met the boys when they were born and uh, were able to bring them home about four days after. That's wonderful. Yeah. And they're they're just turned five. They just turned five. Um, what is it they say? The days are long, the years are short. But, you know, I will say this, you know, when we were adopting the boys, I, I was I was in a brief stint in corporate America. I, I had worked for Hillary Clinton and I was, you know, much like the rest of us, pretty exhausted and took a little break from politics, which gave me the space and time and my husband the space and time to form our family. But I talked to a lot of my friends in the reproductive rights, health, justice space about what they thought, you know, about adoption and across the board. And I talked to adoptees, friends of mine who are adoptees about what they thought about abortion. And here's the thing that's important, um, especially in light of Dobbs and Amy Coney Barrett being an adoptive mother herself and some of the wild stuff she said in those oral arguments, I don't know if you remember this, about um, a domestic supply of infants. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes, just disgusting I remember that. stuff, just really foul stuff. Um, there's nothing incompatible between adoption and abortion care. And most adoptees I know support that freedom to decide. And it's because so many American women don't have that freedom to decide and didn't have it pre-Dobbs and it's worse for them post-Dobbs, that we need um, this freedom, this reproductive freedom. And it's why so many folks in the uh, adoptee community support it. Um, They know the devastation that happens when families are forced, when women are forced into pregnancy. And so not to make my kids political, but it's just something when you work in this moment, you think a lot about, right? Nothing is black and white. There's a lot of trauma that comes with adoption for both the birth families and the children. Um, and it's not something we should be taking lightly. And it's definitely something that undergirds this right wing theology behind um, these anti-abortion. Well, Mike Johnson has said some weird yeah. stuff. Has he not? He's nuts. Yes. He's perfect. He's a perfect example. They're all like cut from the same bizarro world of, you know, women are here to produce this supply of infants and we should be. Uh, creating policies that control their bodies from Mike Johnson to Amy Coney Barrett. Yeah. Mike Johnson, what was the Alliance for what's that right wing group uh, that's uh, anti uh, gay and anti uh, abortion. And do you know what I'm talking about? I do know what you're talking about and I'll, I'll have to look up the name of it. Um, I'll see, see Alliance in defense of freedom or something like yes, that. Yes. The Alliance for defense <laughs> of freedom. Um, yeah, I mean, what's really terrifying about the current speaker is how deep his ties go to these extremist organizations. But this is important. And this is something um, our our very good mutual friend Cecile Richards says to me all the time. It's important to remind folks that these folks aren't just extremist radicals. These folks are the Republican Party because we can do something about the Republican Party, right? They are now the same group of people. They're not like some fringe group uh, on the extreme right advising and lobbying the Republicans. They are Mike Johnson. He is the Speaker of the House. They are Matthew Kaczmarek. He is one of the most powerful federal judges in the country. They have succeeded in their long-term plan to completely and totally infiltrate the federal government. They are not on the fringe anymore. 
and they are on the Supreme Court. Amy Coney Barrett, Clarence Thomas, Samuel Alito, all the way down to the newest members of Congress. And it's not just like, oh, Marjorie Taylor Greene is a nut. It's look at the Speaker of the House that they elected. Yeah, I think he believes that dinosaurs were around 4,000 years ago. Yeah, like the, I'm uh, not the, kidding you. I think no, I think you're right. Um, yeah. What is it? There's a Bible uh, museum that I'm, I'm forgetting. My husband always tells me about it. But dinosaurs on Noah's Ark. Yes. <laughs> you know how big those big dinosaurs were. I mean, yeah. You, I, you I, couldn't I get two of them. <laughs> you couldn't get two of them on an ark. But this goes back to not debating facts with them, right? Like, it's all mythology and fantasy for them. It's some weird, you know, made-up world that they live in. But they've but it, but it's not a joke anymore because it's about – because they're in power and they're controlling us. Well, we have something we can do about that in this coming election, right? That's right. Look, I mean, we have a really um, incredible opportunity to reelect uh, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris who have spent their time, you know, their four years in the administration, not only repairing the federal government, but aggressively pursuing every possible tool in the federal government to protect and expand abortion access and to send back a, a Congress, well, to win back the House. We have a very clear path to win back the House. Uh, that I think we will down. do. Yeah. And it, it's in large part due to this issue, right? I mean, I think abortion is going to be the tip of the spear for this election. Um, our friends in the House have passed the Women's Health Protection Act not once but twice. They have got every single one of these folks in the House, every single Republican on the record. Now, by when you say our friends in the House, I mean the Democrats. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, okay. I, th- I thought you were being sarcastic. Uh, okay. No, I should be. I shouldn't try to do the human. <laughs> That's your job. Um, I, no, I'm our friends in the House. The pro-choice. Mm-hmm. A pro-reproductive freedom majority led by uh, Hakeem Jeffries, who's doing an excellent job, Catherine Clark, um, who's really elevated this issue of abortion access and care in the House. Um, they've passed legislation to codify Roe twice. Um, they're very clear-eyed, and they're making this the core issue. Look, Tom Swazi did it. Pat Ryan did it. The special elections in really tough places are being won on abortion. So it's a clear path for us in the House. The Senate, you know the Senate. The map is incredibly tough. Yep. Uh, it's why I'm in Nevada today and why I'm in Arizona. Well, why, and why I'm heading to Arizona to support um, Ruben Gallego. We have to not just hold the Senate, which is going to be challenging with the open seats, but we also have to eliminate the filibuster. Uh, the good news is there's a clear path to do it, but it'll be tough. If any issue is going to help us do that, though, it's going to be abortion. And the good news is every single Senate Democrat is uh, running on abortion and is clear about what they will do should they come back to Congress. And the president, listen, if you told me Joe Biden be standing in front of a sign that said restore Roe to kick off his campaign, I would not have believed it six years ago, even five years ago. Uh, but it's uh, he. But look, the good, great thing about Joe Biden is his capacity to evolve and meet the moment, and that's what he's doing. That's right, because he is a devout Roman Catholic, and he has evolved on it, hasn't he? He has, just like he has on so many other issues. And one of the really interesting things about the way he's approaching it is he is, you know, it's, it's not super popular with activists, but he is talking about it in a very personal way. He's talking about his own conflict. Uh, with abortion, 
Um, and that's okay because there's a population mm-hmm. out there that also feels that conflict, but doesn't feel conflict about what the government should do about it. Wants the government out of this decision and wants that fundamental freedom back. And so the combination of Joe Biden, plus let's face it, the vice president who has been really the front line of the Biden-Harris administration, really taking this this case to the American people for the past couple of years. She's on a reproductive freedoms tour right now. She's met with 40 plus, you know, small groups across the country to talk about what they can do. She's convened, you know, policymakers, state legislators, experts. Um, and this is something she comes up very personally and that she's very authentic on. Biden, evidently, I, um, I, I read this in the book, The Last Politician mm-hmm. by Frank Four, that what really got him animated was the girl in Ohio mm-hmm. who had to f- what, fly to Indiana, Indiana, Indiana. She's a 10 year old girl who I guess was a rape, obviously. And um, that that's what got him animated on this. Well, and of course, if a 10 year old is pregnant, we know it's rape. I mean, a 10 year old no. can't consent to uh, sex. So I think, Joe Biden has a tremendous capacity for empathy. Mm -hmm. And I know he's talked to folks like Amanda Zarowski. I know he's talked to Amanda directly. I know um, he's met with and had conversations with Dr. Austin Denard, who was in one of his ads, who's another case from Texas of someone who had to leave the state for abortion care. He also is very, very persuaded by the women in his life. The first lady has convened patients and uh, folks who've had uh, abortion care in the White House and has had really frank conversations with them. And I know those have also really helped shape his uh, position and where he's coming from with a place of empathy, but also a place of righteous indignation that anyone has to go through this. Well, many thank you for your work. Thank you for having me. And thank you for joining us. Um, this is, I, I, I do believe this is an issue that, uh, we were beginning to lose some young people, and I hope that they're listening and they're they're watching what's going on in, in, on this issue because that's one that needs to be uh, really front and center in this in this coming election. You know, I'll just say you know one last thing about since you brought up young people, there've been that really wonderful surprise and positive story. Uh, in all of these ballot initiatives, in all of these key states, in all of these special elections. They are turning out in record numbers. They're registering. We saw an an incredible increase in Michigan um, in 2022. Mm -hmm. They were decisive in Ohio's ballot initiative. Um, We are investing um, in college organizing and campus organizing in unprecedented numbers across the movement right now. As usual, young people will save us if we give them the uh, resources to do so. So uh, very grateful. To, to our young leaders in the movement and beyond. Ditto. Uh, thank you, Minnie. Thank you so much. Well, I, I hope you enjoyed uh, listening. That beautiful music is by Leo Kotke, the great Leo Kotke. I want to thank Peter Ogburn for producing this podcast. We'll talk again next week.
Hey, Prime members, you can listen to the Al Franken podcast ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at wondery.com slash survey. The early 2000s was a wild time for reality TV. There seemed to be an endless supply of shows that delivered entertainment for us, but trauma for children. I'm Misha Brown, the host of Wondery's podcast, The Big Flop. Each week on The Big Flop, comedians join me to chronicle the biggest pop culture fails of all time and try to answer the age-old question, who thought this was a good idea? We recently looked behind the scenes of what was really going on at Abby Lee Miller's dance studio. Abby's biggest misstep wasn't screaming nonsensical catchphrases or throwing chairs on television, but instead, she was choreographing financial fraud in plain sight. Join me to break down all the wild details of Abby Lee Miller's story. Follow The Big Flop on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Big Flop early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus. Once upon a beat. Remember those stories and fables that would capture your imagination and you couldn't wait to see how they would unfold? And now, when you read them as an adult, you think some of these old tales could use a fresh spin. We have a perfect podcast to bring you the stories you remember, remix, and reimagine for the kids in your life today. Join me, DJ Fuse, and my trusty turntable, Baby Scratch, as we spin up new tales in the new kids and family podcast, Once Upon a Beat. Wondry and Tinkercast are bringing you a jam-packed, music-filled weekly party where hip-hop and fables meet. It's Once Upon a Beat. Follow Once Upon a Beat on the Wondry app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Once Upon a Beat early and ad-free right now by joining Wondry Plus in the Wondry app or Wondry Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Once Upon a Beat.